The time is 8.07. This is Bill McLive, iHeartRadio's talk for the Space Coast. With today's Common Sense on Common Radio. Here's Bill Mick. Hour three of a Tuesday, April 5th of 2022, being brought to you by the McPherson Financial Group. Glad you're with us on 92.7 FM, 1240 or 1350 AM, the iHeartRadio app, wherever you may be. And by the way, if you're listening on the iHeart app, that new talkback feature lets you punch the microphone on the screen and give us 30 seconds of your commentary. Now, it doesn't come on the air. It goes to a website where I go pick it up later, and we may use it on the show. We may not, but you're more than welcome to throw that comment that way. But if you want to be heard on the show, it's 321-768-1240. As uh, this Tuesday 8 o'clock hour has quickly become one of my favorite hours of the week, mainly because I get to spend an hour with a friend that I don't get to see when we used to work together every day in Modesto. Dave Bowman joins us now in Silverdale, Washington, as he brings us Dave Does History every week. Dave, how are things in uh, spring break Washington State, my friend? How is it possible, Bill, that 20 years ago we were doing this at 3.30 in the morning, and I'm still getting up at 3.30 in the morning to do this? <laughs> you you didn't do the smart thing and move to the eastern time zone. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Things are good here. It's supposed to be almost 70 today. Oh, very good. Pretty good excited. for you. We are already at uh, 73, by the way, just so you know. Yeah, well, you know. I want you to also, make you feel better. Are you having rain? Are you? Is, is it holding having, down your allergies? Course, is the problem? Of course, we're having rain. It's Washington State. Come on. Yeah. It's okay. You, England, same thing. Yeah. Whatever. Right. We can there you that. go. So Bill was having a conversation <laughs> with uh, with Rod and I a couple of weeks, uh, some time ago. I don't remember what it was. You were having a conversation with somebody about presidents and yeah, my sister. That's right. Specifically, governorships because. I gather that uh, your governor is making noises about running for president or somebody is making noises about him running for president. Well, yeah, big rumbles in the party that he is interested in getting in. He says, hey, I'm focused on running for re-election and being the governor of Florida. We are uh, pretty darn happy with him most of the time. And uh, he's getting some national recognition for his stance on the parental rights and education law that he just signed last week. And, of course, that's the flashpoint for the LGBT community and their attack and their lawsuit to try to stop the law. Uh, but he's standing up. He's not going to sit back down. And I, and I really like where he's at as far as presentation. So, yeah, he, he, he's rumbled there. Question is, will it be DeSantis v. Trump, Trump and DeSantis? Uh, I wrote a column last week actually saying, you know what, you don't replay last year's NCAA tournament. You regroup and you, and you, and you go on, or, or you can't replay the last game, and too many Republicans are trying to do that. I think it's time for Donald Trump to be a coach now and uh, support the team, whoever that nominee ends up being, whether it's DeSantis, Ted Cruz, or somebody else along the way. Bet you made some friends with that, huh? Yeah, well, I haven't heard a lot of flack yet, but I haven't talked about it much on the air. I mean, <laughs> read the column if you want to know what I think about it. You know? So... The, the conversation kind of drifted into governors becoming presidents and how does this happen and those sort of things. And we're going to get there eventually, but I want to start with this. Do you think DeSantis would be a good president? My initial reaction would be yes to that. Why? What is it about DeSantis that would make him a good president? He is at the very least coming off principled. He seems to have sway. Yeah, and a little different than President Trump had, Dave. 
He's got sway in the legislature, but it's a Republican-controlled legislature. Donald Trump had to fight a Republican Party that didn't support him as you thought it might have, and the things that he accomplished through that leadership that he had, in spite of uh, having to fight Congress to get it done, showed strength to me. And, right. and, and maybe similar to Reagan, who had to fight a Democratic-controlled Congress but still got things done in his terms. All right. Let's move then to a broader question and, and remove it just from him. What are the criteria that make a good president? What are we actually looking for in a president? What, what kind of things do you think we should be looking at? Are we looking for just a really good guy? Are we looking for a great leader in a time of crises? Maybe somebody whose economy is just roaring and, and, and everything is great. What, what, what kind of things are you looking for? I, I like the idea of a great leader in times of crisis, somebody who is calm in the midst of the storm, who listens to quality advisors, appoints the right people around them, and ha- takes and listens to advice, because you can't expect a president to be, for example, your economic leadership idea. I don't expect a, a president to be an economist. I expect him to listen to the ones that make sense and, and who is grounded in his philosophy, who has a foundation, like we were talking in the last hour about Kentaji Brown Jackson. You've got a foundation. Just be honest and tell us what it is and let us make a decision based on that. And yet we tend to attribute those economies to the president, don't we? Mm, the president's the president's do. fault that this happened. It's the president's good policies that did this. And I, I think sometimes we have to separate these lists because there are thousands upon thousands of lists. Every historian that has a name uh, has put out a list of who's the best presidents, who's the best presidents. Of course, you always get the same top three, but down from there, it, it varies. And then everybody focuses on the, the best presidents and then who's the worst president. And it, it, it's intriguing to me because more often than not, these lists aren't best criteria they're best as in these are my favorites you know what i mean yeah so for example if i were to sit here and do my criteria what i'm looking for in a president my three favorite presidents wouldn't make either list they wouldn't make the top three list nor would they make the bottom three list because they're just my favorite people they're not you know they're they're not they weren't necessarily great presidents nor were they bad presidents but they were Interesting in other ways to me. For example, my personal favorite president is George Herbert Walker Bush. Why? Because I was in the service during the Persian Gulf War. He is my president. He's the guy I voted for. He has, you know, a common experience with me with the Navy and stuff like that. Did I agree with everything he did? Oh, heck no. But, you know, I, I always felt like he had us, had us in mind and I always felt like he tried his best, even if it you know, failed most often. We don't get that feeling with you know, It's interesting person. that you bring him up because the uh, special agent in charge, in charge of the U.S. Secret Service in Charleston, West Virginia, when I was a drug cop, and we worked with them on occasion, not a lot, but when President Clinton got elected, he was still sitting in that office until later replaced with the new management structure that came in. But he kept the photo of President George Herbert Walker Bush behind his desk in his office where it had sat throughout the Bush presidency and didn't replace it with the Bill Clinton photo that had to be posted out front in the public office. But in his private office, it was still George H.W. Bush. Bush, uh, Herbert Walker Bush was a man of great class and dignity, and his letter to Clinton, you know, that he left on the White House desk. And we, we all know these stories and stuff like that. You know, it, it, it's intriguing because 
There are a lot of things about Bill Clinton I like. Would I vote for him? No. Would I agree with his policies? No. But I can tell you that I've met the man, and on a personal basis, I really kind of like him. And You could sit down, have a beer with him, maybe absolutely. take an airplane trip to a private island somewhere. <laughs> yeah, not, maybe not that far because I don't fly. But So when we're thinking about these terms of presidency, what are we looking for? What's the criteria? For us, it seems like we have certain expectations. But imagine if you're in 1787, July of 1787, as a matter of fact, and nobody's even ever heard of a president before. How do you invent a presidency? Ooh, that's a great question. Dave, we get to it and more when we continue in just 60 seconds on Bill McLive. By the way, I've uh, shared a link to the DaveBowmanShow.com on the WMMB Facebook page, a couple of links there on the uh, show page at BillMick.com, which is headline Beck told us so. And Dave has shared a comment on there that links you to a Constitution Thursday edition of his show, The Second Man, which is the foundation for where we are at the moment. Dave, before we go back to the um, to the to where we're going, back to when the idea of a presidency was founded, you mentioned is a president just a good guy? That's one of the things that I kept saying during the run and tenure of Donald Trump as president is that. We're elected a president, not a priest, not a pastor. We're electing politicians, and it is not necessarily a clean game to get there. It's not always a nice guy who gets to the top of that fray. And while Donald Trump was gruff and, and had his uh, Twitter moments, he was also somebody who got something done. So it's not always a good guy, right? It, it depends on how you define good, of course. Donald Trump was hardly the roughest man to ever occupy the White House. And, and really, he's not even in the top five of those people. So it, it's, it's, but it's a shocker to us because we don't really know it. So in July of 1787, the convention is literally halfway through. And they know it's halfway through, Bill. They're getting ready to take a two-week vacation. They're, they're going to stop at the end of July and take two weeks off and just go have fun. Washington is going to go fishing. Um, there's Parties are going to be held. Chase women. Yeah, all yeah, of that. All that kind of stuff is going on. But as, as they get to this section of the Constitutional Convention, they have to solve this presidency thing. Now, if you think about the Constitutional Convention, you, you know that the, the proportional representation, the Senate issue, was a huge deal. You know that slavery was a huge deal. Those two issues combined did not take as much time to deal with or as much difficulty to deal with as this did, the presidency. Why? Because nobody had ever done this before. No one had any idea what it was going to be. They knew they needed a chief executive because Congress, it isn't the 21st century. Congress isn't constantly in contact with people. It takes two weeks to, thir to, to a month to get to New York City, to the Capitol. Somebody right. has to run things while they're not there. So and Dave, we're going to have to lay it out when we continue in moments on Bill McLive. Also have a phone call or two to get to. 321-768-1240. Dave does history on WMMB. The time is 826. Call Bill now. 321-768-1240. Common sense on Common Radio. The McPherson Financial Group makes this hour possible. Nice to have you along with us on WMMB. As uh, Dave Bowman joins us with Dave Does History. Dave, before we get into the uh, 
Constitutional Convention and how they decided president was the way to go, we've got a call from Jim in Vieira. Jim, good morning. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Bill. Uh, good morning, Dave. Uh, I think Dave, I listen to the, the history show every week because I find it fascinating. Um, I think that Dave asked probably the most poignant and, and direct question that nobody asked themselves, and what makes a good president? Uh, I think it changes a little bit from time to time, but I think it's basically a, a, simple, a simple answer. Somebody who protects the individual rights, the national security, and uh, enhances and increases the um, prosperity of the American people. And it's easy to see when you transition from president to president whether or not somebody accomplished those simple, well, they're complicated, but simple missions when, when you state them. We were so much more prosperous with Donald Trump in office and had so much money in our, more money in our pockets as individuals that the contrast between he and Biden is amazing. National security, we, we didn't have the problems at the border that are reoccurring now. We had peace in the Middle East. North Korea wasn't testing nukes. Russia wasn't in Ukraine. It took 18 months or less to create world instability and economic depression in this country when we change presidents. So policy really, really matters. And nobody asks themselves what makes a good president, and I hope all the listeners hear this. If you can't figure out what made a good president after the transition to Biden, you're not watching the same game I am. Jim, it's very well said, and, and I appreciate you being part of it and, and acknowledging what Dave's doing with us here and, and for us. Um, Dave, you've inspired folks with your thought and your question, sir. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. Um, the problem with what we're thinking here is that it, it's, I, I, I got to say this politely, it, it's one-sided. What we think is great, keep in mind that 45% of the country doesn't think is great. So just because I think somebody is a good president, you know, I mean, reality is bill that there are people who think that economic prosperity is bad, who think that, you know, the oil industry is bad, that who think that keeping illegal immigrants out is bad. Okay. So you and got, that your rights are subservient to those of the whole. So wear a mask and right. get a shot. So if 45% of the people think that and 45% of the people think the other, really, who's making the decisions about where the country goes? You know, the, the 10% in the middle. So the Constitutional Convention is looking at this and, and they really struggle with this whole presidency thing. And why might they struggle with it? A lot of the same reasons that we struggle with it today. Number one, though, they had never done it before. We take it for granted. They had, nobody had ever done this. No country, no constitution, no republic that existed then had an elected chief executive. They were all hereditary. So th this is completely new ground for everybody. And so they got to get it right. And it's hard because there are so many. Which we can pretty much agree. The hereditary thing's not a good idea. It certainly hasn't worked so far and, and never in a republic <laughs> has it ever worked. So, um, yeah. So it's, there's a lot of issues with this whole thing. There's questions like, should we decide what kind of person this should be? In other words, does he have to meet certain moral criteria? Does he have to belong to a church? Does he have to have a faith? Does he have to have military service? Does he have to do this? Those kinds of things. One of the biggest arguments they have is how many presidents should there actually be? 
just one or uh, as many as three. There are, there is actually a move to break the country into three administrative zones and have three presidents ruling over those particular areas or leading those areas. This, how long should he be the president? This actually leads to one of the very few thigh slapping hysterical moments of the convention so much so that Madison even writes it down in his diary. They, uh, they start throwing out numbers, you know, should it be four years? Should it be six years? Could it be seven years? And all of a sudden, everybody around the room, people who haven't spoken the whole convention are throwing out these ridiculous numbers. One guy says, why not just make him 40 years? And when he dies, we'll replace him. And, and Madison actually notes in there, I think he was being sarcastic, but it was kind of funny. So, <laughs> but the biggest question of all, Bill, and we'll get into this in a little bit more detail here in a minute, is how do we choose this man? How do we elect this person? Because that is far more complicated than anything else. I'll bet it is, and we will get into it in just a minute, as the McPherson Financial Group makes this hour of the show possible. The battle you're having right now is, how's that retirement plan doing, and is it performing as you expected? Are you uh, worried about taking losses? Are you worried that your retirement income is not going to be what you've anticipated and planned for? Let Art and the staff at the McPherson Financial Group do a complimentary review for you and come up with a retirement income plan that's going to give you comfort that your retirement's going to be there when you need it, the way you expect it, and on time that you wanted it. Those are all factors, and it's things that the McPherson Financial Group considers as they help you prepare your retirement plan. You can learn more from them at mcphersonfinancialgroup.com, and you can reach out to them to schedule that complimentary review at 321-253-2016. The McPherson Financial Group LLC is a financial services firm offering a broad array of products and services that include insurance and annuities. They're licensed in Florida. I am compensated for the endorsement, and yes, they handle my financial planning, and I appreciate that they do. Don't forget their show each weekend on WMMB. It's called The Art of Money. Three opportunities each week to catch us. Dave Bowman with us as we take a look at how did we decide it was going to be a president, and how in the world were we going to elect him? What went on, Dave? The biggest thing you have to keep in mind in this convention is during this 10 days, when they first start out, everybody is really scared to say anything at all. They don't want to talk about this presidency. They don't want to say what they think it should be. They don't want to say anything at all about it because everybody in that room knows that whatever they decide, the first president is going to be George Washington. They all know that. And he's sitting right there in front of him, them. And they don't want to say anything that might offend him, might make him mad, might make him question them, whatever. And so Ben Franklin actually has to stand up and say to people, he has to point his finger and basically say to people, look, I know what you're thinking, but you need to be thinking about the second man. You need to be thinking about who's going to be president after George Washington, because that's the guy we're really, we're really setting these rules up for. So at that point, things kind of open up. Now, there's multiple ways to elect a president. The the most common way would be, and easiest way would be a direct election, a national popular vote, right? We don't like that today. Why? Because if we did that today, who would actually elect the president? California. New York, Boston, Los Angeles, Chicago, Seattle. Exactly. And they have the same issue in 1787. They're running numbers and they realize that if Virginia decides to run for one guy and and everybody in Virginia votes for one guy, they're going to win which makes it a favorite son issue. What happens when 
We're not voting for the best person. We're voting for the best person from our state. So they don't like that way. There's indirect methods. Hey, let's have Congress choose the president. Well, that opens up issues with, uh, with influence. In other words, you know, the president or the candidates for president leaning on, uh, leaning on folks and saying, Hey, you know, vote for me and I'll do this for you. And the same with states. They say, well, maybe the states should choose him, but then they run into the same problem. What happens when he decides to reelect, get reelected or run for reelection? He starts leaning on states and it's a problem. It's going to fall to one man, a guy who is an immigrant from Scotland. His name is James Wilson and he's from Pennsylvania and he is going to invent the presidency as we know it today. Oh, wow. Sounds like a massive undertaking, something that uh, Mr. Scott would have to do on the enterprise with less time than he needs to do it. Right. You got 10 days. It's more or less. That's going to be fun. We'll explore it and get to your calls as we continue in a moment on Bill McLive. 321-768-1240. Somebody's going to end up being the call of the day. Yesterday, it happened to be Mike in Melbourne today. Who knows? We've had several good ones, and we'll see what remains in our final segment of the hour as we look at the making of a president, and not the first one, but the ones that come after. That's an interesting question on Bill McLive. Dave Does History, our weekly journey through the Wayback Machine. Dave Bowman is with us on Bill McLive. Thanks, Victor Lyle, the McPherson Financial Group, making the possible. And uh, Dave is with us as we talk the making of a president. Before we get back into how they decided this was going to be done, let's get a uh, quick phone call in from Gary in Melbourne. Hey, Gary, welcome to the show. Hey, this is Gary. I just want to sit there and say Dave does history, one of the, maybe one of the most important hours of the week, only on WMMB. Well, Gary, thank you. I know Dave and I have fun doing it. We're glad you enjoy it and appreciate you being part of it. There you go, Dave. We are uh, getting some recognition here, pal. Well done. Recognition and liners. He doesn't want to get paid for that, right? Uh, no. Okay. No, no, no. Oh, no, the liner? Yeah, yeah, he's already been paid for no, that. I, I know and, uh, Vic. I mean, I mean, Gary. Gary doesn't want to get paid for that, does he? No, I, I, he didn't say so. He might appreciate a donation, but we just don't know where to send it. So send it to me. All right. I'll have a hot dog on his behalf. All right. Works for me. So All right, let's get back into, uh, you were telling us about James Wilson uh, from Scotland, from Pennsylvania, at the Constitutional Convention, and it falls to him to figure out how we're going to elect the president? James Wilson of Pennsylvania is a remarkable founding father. Remember all those weeks ago when we were told about, oh, it was only three or four guys? James Wilson's one of those guys that people don't know about. He is actually a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was twice elected to the Continental Congress from Pennsylvania. And he will also later be one of the first associate justices of the Supreme Court. He is the guy who listens to all this argument for these 10 days and sets pen to paper. And he basically writes Article 2 of the Constitution. And we don't have a lot of time, so we're not going to go into all the details of it. But what you need to know about is that he his criteria for president energetic, independent, and accountable. Those are the three things he's looking for in this person. He also believed in the direct election of the, of the president by the people, the national popular vote. That's what he wanted. He believed that the president would then become very symbolic as a leader. He would be chosen by all the people instead of by political machinations and, and the likes of that. 
he he thinks that you know that that'll do well. The rest of the convention doesn't like that. They want the executive insulated from the popular will. And the other thing they don't like about his direct national vote thing is that he intentionally deletes the three-fifths compromise. So the Southern states are already like, oh, no, we're not. No, no, we're not doing that because you're basically handing it to Virginia or to uh, the Northern states again. And we don't like that. So then he looks around and he says, hey, you know what we do here in Pennsylvania is we we vote for electors. We have a slate of electors and then those electors get together and they choose the executive. They choose the governor. So why don't we do something like that? Long story, very short, that electoral system out of Pennsylvania is ultimately adopted, but it's, it's kind of modified particularly at the last minute uh, later in September. They make one huge change to it, which is Wilson wants the names of the presidential candidates on the ballot, but the convention changes, or I'm sorry, he wants the name of the electors on the ballot. So in other words, I'm voting for Bill Mick to be an elector for president. I'm voting for Dave Bowman to be an elector for president. They change that to be the actual presidential candidates. He thinks that this is horrible because it, it, it essentially eviscerates the whole idea of having an electoral system and you know, 200 plus years later, you'd have to say he was right. The problem is that James Wilson never actually considered the idea of political polarization. He never thought America would devolve into political parties. He always thought that the president would be above that and that would moderate everything. And of course, didn't quite work out that way. And when we look at what happened, we're kind of in a position of, well, did it work or did it not work? We've had some really great presidents. We've had some really crappy presidents. And some people think the really crappy ones were good. And some people think the really great ones were bad. So where are we? The rabbis teach us, Bill, that if two people agree on everything, one of them isn't necessary. So did we get it right? Do we choose our president the right way? I don't know, but I know that there's no we better way to do it. We are a lesson in imperfection. There's no better way to do it. Nobody ever came up with a better way. Sure wasn't working hereditarily. So mm-hmm. at least uh, at least we have a say in it, I guess, is, is the way, way to look at it. But did we get the right people every time? Did we get the best second man after George Washington? In some cases, yes. In some cases, certainly not. And we're back to talk it more and take your calls at 321-768-1240 when we continue in a minute on Bill Mick Live. Dave Bowman with us as Dave does history on Tuesdays on Bill Mick Live, talking about the idea of how the presidency was created and what makes a good one. Dave, let's give another phone call in. We go quickly to Keith in Palm Bay. Hey, Keith, welcome. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, really appreciate these days. Um, Dave does a great job. Yes, sir. Um Never mind the bills here, but Dave does a great job. I got you. Okay. We understand. Oh, That's enough, Keith. I got it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still just angry over the process I have to go to go through to get the bill. Uh, well, um, yeah. <laughs> all right. well, we took George out of the way. At least you get here. <laughs> Where's George? Hey, um, you know, since antiquities writings, you know, the, the Torah and the Bible, I mean, there hadn't been a more divinely inspired piece of paper that, you know, uh, written the Constitution. It could fit in your back pocket, by the way. 
you know, and, and I, I think one of the most important things about the president is a lot of what Jim from Vieira said, but, you know, it's trust, the handshake, and integrity, no matter what your background is or religion. But I would be careful on the words of uh, the president should make sure the country's prosperous. You know, like welfare in the Constitution, I, I don't know, these, these guys can wordsmith this stuff. I don't think his job is to make sure the, the country is prosperous. I think it's more of his job to keep liberty and freedom to the maximum without government entanglement here or overseas into the drama and emotion so that the country can be prosperous. If he does his job, he doesn't have to worry about the country being prosperous because we'll learn from failure. Interesting thought, Keith. Appreciate you being here and getting your thoughts on the table. Um, Dave, life, liberty, and the pursuit of started to be property, did it not, which would imply prosperous there. It was originally property in the original draft of the Declaration, but it, it got changed along with a few other things. A couple of things there that I would say. Number one, um, and I don't have time to get into this, but I, I really bristle at the inclusion of, I, I, I gotta be careful how I say this. The, the, the constitution is a distinctly secular document and it's intentionally done so. And when we try to infuse our faith necessarily into it, and I know what Adam said about it's a moral people and all that, but we got to be really careful about that because again, in the second sense, you're, you're isolating people. Okay. It's easy to say that the president shouldn't worry about prosperity. And, and for the record, I agree. Liberty is more important, but keep in mind that we had a president who was more interested in Liberty at one point and, and so interested in protecting Liberty and financial freedom that he to this day is blamed for the quote, worst financial crisis in the history of the world, unquote, Herbert Hoover, and was replaced with someone whose, whose entire ideology was give people money. The government's here to be your safety net in Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he was reelected, you know, three more times. So you, you got to be careful when you say things like that, because again, I go back to what I said, 45% of the people in this country completely see things the diff, the, the total opposite the way you do. So how do we compromise? How do we work things out? The very fact that we have a president is example that we can compromise, that we can work those things out. Do we still do it the way we did it in 1787? I'd have to say no, but you know, that's just my view of things. No, but, but maybe we're seeing some signs, Dave, that it's coming back. And I've got two things that may serve as an example of that. Our discussion at the end of the last hour with Tulsi Gabbard, a Democrat who ran for president on her party's ticket, was summarily rejected because she made too much sense. But now she's coming out and saying, you know what? Florida's got this right on the parental right in their rights and education bill, and she's coming out in support of a Republican governor, a Republican legislature, and on the side of common sense. Is that an indication that the conversation can be had, but you've got to find the right people to have it? So I'll bet you a coffee mug, Bill, that before the end of the next 24 hours, there'll be a tweet on a Democrat site somewhere saying that the reason Tulsi Gabbard supports this bill is because she loves, you know, Trump and Putin. 
She's a Putin supporter. She's against the war. <laughs> yeah. So therefore, you can safely ignore everything she has to say, which is how she, that's really how they destroyed her in the presidential election. Remember, Hillary accused her of being a Russian operative of all things. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's so, true. And, and by the way, I can't, I can't accept the wager because I'm already in a coffee mug deficit. I don't have a Dave Bowman show coffee mug. This is true, but I, I can take care of that. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> you know, look, are we coming around? Look, every time we see Congress people, my congressman, Derek Kilmer, is very adamant about having a nonpartisan breakfast every week. They sit down with 40 or 50 congressmen, and it's supposed to be completely apolitical. I think that's a great idea. We've been doing that off and on for a lot of times, but when push comes to shove, his election campaign is all partisan. He doesn't want to hear anything from the conservative side. He doesn't think we we have any good ideas. He doesn't like the way we think. So does it really do any good? I'd like to think that it does, but we have, as James Wilson never took into consideration the political part of polarization of the nation. And I think that to our detriment, that's what's happened with the presidency. The presidency has become completely polarized, completely political, and we no longer choose the best man to lead us or best woman to lead us. We choose the person that we think is going to represent our policies, period, whether we've thought those policies completely through or not. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's get a quick phone call in before the day's done. Line one, got under a minute for you. Go right ahead. Well, this is on Gabbard, okay? She sounds great now, okay? She's come a lot farther right, but she had to because she had no audience on the other side. She wouldn't be on any shows at all if she didn't, if she's a novelty on, on Fox, the reason they, they cover her at all, because she has come this far. She would have no voice at all if she had stayed like she was. So you're telling me she's right. capable of learning and adapting positions. That's a positive to me, Steve. And yes, we're going to disagree on other things, but she's having the conversation. Dave, I got 30 seconds. Let's wrap it up, pal. Well, the only danger of somebody like that or, or anybody is, again, they're going to be house trained ultimately because really it's about getting reelected. So in that sense, James Wilson was right and the, the convention was right. Thanks to the McPherson Financial Group for the hour. Catch the podcast if you miss any of it. It's been a great show today. I appreciate it. Dave, you're off next week. We'll talk the following. See you then. All right. Thank you for being here. Wide open Wednesday tomorrow.